Romans chapter 8, beginning at verse 31. What then shall we say in response to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how would he not also along with him graciously give us all things? Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. Who then is the one who condemns? No one. Christ Jesus who died, more than that who was raised to life, is at the right hand of God and is also interceding for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall trouble or hardship or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, for your sake we face death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Would you like to read with me aloud these last three verses with faith and passion? (laughs) No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced that neither death nor life nor angels nor demons, neither the present nor the future nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Well, welcome everybody. It's uh, lovely to see you all. Um, Indeed, a great passage of scripture. Uh, Anyone's favourite? Many, perhaps. Perhaps will be soon. Can I ask that you might... Uh, Join me as we come before God's word and we'll pray together. Gracious Heavenly Father, week by week we gather in uh, this place and we pray a similar prayer, that we would be a listening people with soft hearts, with minds ready to be transformed, listening to a speaking God. And once again, Lord, we would come and ask that your spirit and your word uh, would be at work. And Lord, that we would be uh, so transformed from understanding what it is that you communicate to us through your word. And as I seek to explain it, pray that I do it faithfully. But above all, Lord, that as we have just heard you speak, that those truths would resonate within us deeply and change the way we think about you and the way we think about ourselves and others and our lives. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We're playing Survivor. And it's that long, slow walk down the beach. Flaming torch in hand and you're heading to tribal council. And you don't know if you've got the numbers or not. You don't know if you're about to be voted off the island. The game is Survivor and you're playing it, like it or not. And someone's going home tonight. And you don't feel very safe. If you're not familiar with the game, you've um, been dropped onto a deserted island with a bunch of other contestants. You've just got the clothes that are on your back. Hardly any food. And you're going to compete over weeks and weeks in challenges in order to get rewards and gain immunity. You've been told that to win this game, you will have to outwit, outplay and outlast everyone else. 
and now you're in the tribal council area and you know that votes are going to be cast and you're wondering if this will be the night that ends it all for you. Are you safe? Have you done enough of the social game? Have you got the right alliance? Is it possible that tonight you'll be blindsided? Have you managed to find a hidden immunity idol that might divert any votes that are cast against you? Will you be asked questions by the host that will expose your game plan? Or have you beaten all the other comers in the challenges and tonight you wear the immunity bracelet, the immunity idol, the necklace, whatever it might be? Or will you be voted out? Well, it's the long, slow walk through your life. And you're heading towards your eternal future. Are the numbers on your side? Have you done enough? Have you played the social game? Have you got more friends and enemies? Have you got the bravado? And are you convinced that you can talk your way out of any condemning vote? Have you got immunity in your pocket? How safe do you feel? Well, this morning we arrive at Romans chapter 8, verse 31 through 39, in a series that bears the title, A New Way of Living. And the whole theme of this morning is about being convinced of the love of God for us. But maybe we're uncertain, unsure. Maybe it is like that long, slow walk down the beach, wondering, is God loving towards me? Uh, We've just read the passage that is uh, well-loved by many Christians because it speaks of us, of this new way of living. A new way of living that's actually full of assurance because it's grounded in God's love and a confidence that there is no chance of being separated from that love. It's actually a passage that tells you that you will never be voted out, which seems astonishing. In fact, Um, We've already been made aware of this fact back in chapter 8, verse 1, when the Apostle Paul says, Therefore there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. No condemnation. None. When you stand before the judge, despite the fact that you ought to be convicted, in fact, Romans chapters 1 to 3 have made that very clear. Every single one of us, Despite your background, despite the fact that you might think you've got the lineage or whatever it might be, there is no one righteous, not even one. And so now it's been revealed that your unrighteousness, that ought to have you condemned, has been swapped out for Christ's perfect righteousness. And he bears your sin and has been put to death on the cross and dies in your place. And now you bear his righteousness and God the judge of all looks upon you and sees you in Christ and Christ in you and perfect righteousness and perfect justice meet. Sin will be dealt with in Christ on the cross and you can stand before the judge and receive the verdict, no condemnation because God looks upon you and sees the perfect righteousness of his son. It's astonishing It's as Paul says, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
Well, with that in mind, how should we then live? And that's the very question that we've been thinking about over these last few weeks as we've looked at chapter 8. The short answer is, since Christ now dwells in you and you are in Christ, live in step with his spirit as adopted children of God that you are. And if you want to have a thumbnail sketch of what that looks like, it is to see that God is at work in us, conforming us to the likeness of his son. We thought about this last week. His purpose is to make you and me more and more like Jesus. And the spirit that now dwells in us is working to that end. We ended last week with Daniel showing us that, uh, that God, in Romans chapter 8, 28 and 30, is promising that he will achieve that purpose. It's not surprising that God makes a promise like that because he is superb at doing what he says he is going to do. And, and that's why God is identified as being sovereign. And we've been told that God is so sovereign that he will use all things, a creation that groans, a world that groans in its suffering, and the prayers of the Spirit who groans on our behalf, all things are in fact at his disposal and will be used to achieve his purpose. And of course, we bear in mind that the all things that are used by God are for our good. So in a sense, Paul says you can go to eternity past, which side is that? Eternity past and discover that God is interested in you and me. And he's got a plan that reaches and spans across to eternity future. And God knew you. And he says he's given you a destiny. And you've got to try and get your mind wrapped around that. The sovereignty of God. And he's working all things to his great purpose. That's what it says in verse 28. Just before the passage that we had read a moment ago. We know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who've been called according to his purpose. And you're meant to hear that and realise that God's purpose is bigger than your desires or mine that I might have for me or for you, you that you would have for yourself. His purpose is to conform you to the likeness of his son. That's the good that God is working all things toward. He's crafting you and shaping you to be more and more like Jesus. And if you're anything like me, you'd have to say he's got a lot of work to do. Because when you look and you think about Jesus, you see perfect righteousness, one who is full of glory, and then you look at, well, me, yourself, and you think, how's the likeness? Hmm, Not so much. A little here, a little there. But do you see what God is saying that he's doing in me and in you? Through the work of his spirit, he is building a family of believers who are just like our elder brother Jesus. And that's a lot of work. And of course, the question is, is he going to succeed? You think about the raw material that he's having to shape. Often it's hard-hearted and hard-headed. Will God succeed? And actually, as you read through this passage, you notice that it's got nothing to do with the raw material. And it's got everything to do with God's sovereignty and the commitment that he's made to his purpose. See, when you read on into verse 29... It tells us that for those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son so that he might, so that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. 
As you read through that passage and you say, well, if God is changing me, who's doing all that work? What do I have to do in response? And you realize he is the one who's doing all the work. Those God foreknew, he predestined. And when you go on and you read through the passage, you realize he's doing everything along every stage, all the way to our glorification, in fact. It tells you that God wrote the script and is playing out the story such that all things are working towards that end. Whether we can see it or not, or whether we understand it or not. And when you read on into verse 30, you see how this follows on, how it all links together. There's kind of a chain of events that move through this passage. Those he foreknew, he predestined, he also called, and those he called, he also justified, and those he justified, he also glorified. And I want you to see the majesty of that section. Do you hear it? All of God's work described there, and all of it described in the past tense. Those he predestined, His choosing of you happened in the past. In fact, a long way back, so far back that according to Ephesians 1 verse 4, he did that before the creation of the world. He chose us through Christ to be holy and perfect in his presence. Reach back to eternity past. Before the creation of the world, he called. He predestined. And those he predestined, he called. There was a proclamation that was heard. The gospel was announced. And those he called were justified. They were declared to be in the right by his son because Christ died and has established that 2,000 years ago. A done deal. Those he predestined, he called. And those he called, he justified. And those he justified, he glorified. And you're meant to go, wait a minute. Don't you mean he will glorify? They will be glorified, because that hasn't happened yet. See, it might be well the case, predestined, called, justified, that's the state of the believer, but look, I'm not glorified. I'm aware of that every day. But it, as written here, is written like it's happened. It's a future event, but it's written like it's happened in the past. And that's exactly right. It's what's called a prophetic past. A future event set in a past tense that is so certain that God has done the first three, he will do the last one. He's a God who finishes what he starts. So you go back to eternity past and you think about eternity future and you see what God is doing. It's what's often referred to as the golden chain in Romans chapter 8 and verse 30. 30. And there you see it. The foreknowledge, predestined, called, justified, glorified, even though the glorified is yet to happen. We're awaiting that. But it's written like it's done. And that's meant to give us an incredible hope, a hope that will not disappoint. That is the way that God sees us, Christ dwelling in us and glorified because of that. Now, what shall we say in response to all these things? If all of that's true, what should we say in response to all of these things? That's the question that Paul asks in the passage as we begin it this morning. And the answer? Well, if all that's true, if it's all true, if God is for us, then who could be against us? Now, what's the assumed answer to that question? No one. Nothing. That's the assumed answer. 
If all that's come in the first eight chapters of Romans, even just in chapter 8 alone, as we think about a passage that begins in verse 1 with no condemnation, then who could be possibly against us? What is the answer to that question? Well, no one or nothing. But is that how you live? And is that the way that you think? That there's nothing against you? That God is for you? Or are you perhaps metaphorically walking up the beach, heading towards your eternal future and you think that it might play out like the tribal council on Survivor? That it's about survival of the fittest? Is it that everything is out to get you and you don't trust anyone and you find it even hard to trust God? Might you be blindsided in the end? See, maybe there really is only one winner and maybe I ought to live my life to outwit and outplay and outlast. See, it's one thing to come to that verse and say, if God's for us, who can be against us? And say, oh, well, that's, that's true. But to live like it's not true. Because if you're tempted to think like that, then let's sit around the fire at the tribal council and let's let the questions fly. Because that's what Paul does. He imagines kind of courtroom scene and flies out a bunch of questions that ought to be considered. If you want to have any confidence of sitting in that kind of space and wondering about who is for you and where the vote might go. And you see those questions as they come. The first one you could summarise with a question like this. Is there something that could wreck God's plan? I mean, we understand this is the way that God wants it to be. And I understand that he's orchestrated it from a long way out, from before the creation of the world. But, you know, what happens if it got mucked up along the way? Could it, could it possibly be thwarted in some way? Is there someone, is there some power or some enemy that might thwart or trump God's plan? Well, the answer is what we've already seen. If God's for us, who, who could it possibly be? Have a look at verse 32. If he who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not also, along with him, graciously, graciously give us all things? What's Paul saying? Listen, think about the plan of salvation that brought about justification. If God let that play out, with all of the forces of this world, with Satan and all of his intentions to thwart God's plan, if even that works itself out according to God's purpose... If he did that, and he fulfilled that promise to bring salvation to the world, will he not also do what he's promised for us? And the answer is, of course. If he could do that, he'll do the next thing. There is no thing, no power, no enemy that could possibly thwart God's plan. If he did that, will he not also graciously give us all things? Yes, he will. So there's question one. Well, that's, that's good to know. There is nothing that could wreck God's plan. Well, wait a minute. Maybe the problem's not with God. Maybe the problem's with me. Is there someone who could bring a charge against me? Maybe the debt's been cancelled, but not all of it. Have a look at verse 33. Who will bring any charge against those whom God has chosen? It is God who justifies. 
What Paul is saying is that when you come to the courtroom and stand before God, that is it. There's no court of appeal. There's no other judge that comes and steps in and goes, but wait a minute. There was more that had to be done. It is God alone who justifies. There is no one else that could possibly bring a charge against you. Well, wait a minute. Let me clarify it again. Question number three, is there anyone else who would condemn me? Maybe God doesn't, but maybe someone else could condemn me. Well, who could? And immediately you get the answer in the passage in verse 34. Who then is the one who condemns? Paul says, no one. But then he kind of stops and qualifies. He goes, well, actually, there is one who could. Oh, no, you say. Who? Who could possibly condemn me? Who could, who could stand up and reveal things about me that might mean that I'm going to get voted off the island? And Paul says, well, Jesus, he could, couldn't he? Jesus who died. And you go, oh, phew, well, he's dead. <laughs> That's something of a comfort. He, he could have actually spoken about my sin. He knows all of it. But he's dead. And so he's not going to be called to prosecute. He's not going to be called as a witness. But read on. More than that, who was raised to life. And all of a sudden you say, oh dear, he's alive. And in fact, he actually bore my sin. So well does he know it that he died for it. If anyone's got a claim or a sense of vendetta, it would be him, wouldn't it? And now he's alive and is he out to get me? Is this kind of first blood part, whatever we're up to, right? He wants revenge. Is that what he's like? We'll read on. Christ Jesus who died, more than that, who was raised to life and is at the right hand of God. So he's sitting in a position of power. And he's actually right there. He's not called as a witness. He's called alongside the judge at the right hand. He's, he's both alive and he's powerful. And that ought to terrify us. Except read on. Look what he's doing at the right hand of God. He is also interceding for us. And you discover that the only one who could bring any condemnation against you is the one who is on your side and he is praying for you. You couldn't have a better defence. Is there anyone who will condemn us? Paul's answer, no one. None. Well, it's been good news. We've had three questions so far around the tribal council and so far Paul said it's looking very good. But there's a fourth question. Is there some event that could separate me from the love of God? Is there some catastrophe, something unforeseen that could bring a division between us and the love of God? And you say, well, like what? Well, I don't know, let's make a list. And that's what he does. We, he loves to do this. He, here comes the list. What about trouble? Well, I mean, we've experienced that. Paul will experience exactly that. Hardships of different types. Times where you don't have what you need. Will that separate? Or the violence that comes against you. Trouble, hardship. What about persecution? Those that attack you for the very belief that you hold. Or famine, or nakedness, or danger, or sword. As it's written, for your sake we face death all day long. 
See, see, list all of those, but what about death? Won't that separate us from the love of God? Because we're like sheep to the slaughter, every one of us. We're just heading towards the abattoir. Isn't that going to be the thing that will separate us? And the answer comes in verse 37. No. No, none of those things. None of them. And in fact, go through that list again and realise that in all those things, we are conquerors. And you say, well, I don't feel like a conqueror in those things. The nakedness and the hunger, the times of hardship and persecution. But here's the perspective of the spirit that dwells in us, groaning and praying on our behalf in a world that's groaning. We recognise the sufferings of this world, but don't lose sight of the one who has you and who is on your side. And take the long look. No, no, in all these things, we win. We're survivors, conquerors. Actually, it's better than that. It's better than just being a conqueror. Paul uses the superlative hyper. We are hyper conquerors, jumbo conquerors, mega conquerors. The NIV translates it how? More than conquerors. It really doesn't have the feel to it, does it? You're meant to thump it out. Because you read through the list and you say, these are the very things that make me feel like God is not on my side. And he's saying, no, no, we are jumbo conquerors. But but don't at that point read through and think you're meant to beat your chest and go, you know, I'm a survivor. Read on. Because immediately you're forced to bend your knee and bow low. Because the reason you're a conqueror isn't because of your performance in the game. It's only possible through him. You see that? No, no. Nothing will separate us from the love of God because in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. It's his performance. It's it's his gameplay that wins. And then Paul reads on and makes sure that you don't miss how astonishing this is. I am convinced that neither death nor life, neither angels nor demons, neither the present or the future, nor any powers, neither height nor depth nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Nothing. Is God for you? How will the vote go? God is for us. In all these things, hyper-conquerors, but through him, because of the conquering work that he does and that he's established. And it secures for us our eternal future. But it's not just hope for then. See, what's the so what in all of this? This ought to impact our confidence. It's why Paul writes this. To give us the same kind of conviction that he has. I am convinced that there is no separation 
because there is no condemnation. And so therefore, I have a confidence today that I'm trusting in a hope that will not disappoint. We can be gloriously convinced of his love for us. There isn't the same kind of uh, uncertainty that someone might swing the vote or it could go pear-shaped. But here is the one that holds fast to his promises. So in all of our doubts, take courage and find that confidence and the contentment that comes, that looks at today and sees a world that groans and our own lives that groans and says in the midst of all of that, Come what come may, God is at work through the roughest day. And if all of this is true, then it ought to impact the way we live our lives and our witness to others. Because any other kind of confidence that people have is like sinking sand. And it ought to impact the way that we think about how we live our lives with joy and thanksgiving. I remember years ago hearing a quote from Rico Tice on this subject, and I've quoted it often. He says, today's a great day. Today's a great day, isn't it? But not because it's sunny. Today's a great day because today is the day that God has planned for me. And if it's good for God, then it's good for me. It may not be for my happiness, but it is for my holiness. And if it is for my holiness, then I'm happy because I know where I am going. Because God is at work achieving the purpose to which he has set this world and he is using all things to make us increasingly like his son. See, how goes it for you? Has something rocked your faith in God? Disappointed you? Are you groaning? Are you wondering if God is on your side? Then take heart and take Romans 8 to heart and come to the tribal council and see that the one who might have had it in for you is fact, in fact for you and will perpetually vote for you. And so it's time for us to vote. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, as we think about how we respond what we might write down on the piece of paper. The one that we are living for. The name that uh, we would bear. The thing that we are trusting in. Lord, where we're tempted to write down other things that we find security in on that piece of paper. Would you convict us and challenge us and call us to repent and write down the name of your son. Lord, where we're tempted to vote for our own intellect or our own goodness, our own performance, draw us now to bear the name of Christ upon that card. Write it upon our hearts and upon our minds and in every decision. Heavenly Father, you are for us. There is none against us. We are more than conquerors, only through him who loved us. And we give you praise and thanks in Jesus' name. Amen.